Hey, everybody, welcome to the Asian Podcast Network. And before we get started introducing our podcasters, I'd like to share a quick message with you about the 2020 census. The census is our American way of counting everyone living in the United States to determine how resources are allocated and how decisions are made. Decisions like funding for schools, roads, public services, and health care. Businesses also use this data to decide whether to open up new stores in our neighborhoods. This week, along with other Asian organizations across the country, we at Asian Podcast Network are so proud to participate in the 2020 Census Asian Week of Action. If you haven't yet, please take a moment to go to 2020census.gov to fill out yours for your household. Remember, this is our last chance for the next 10 years, and the deadline is fast approaching. It takes just minutes and can make a decade of impact, so we encourage you to also check in with your family and friends to make sure they've done the same. Let's make sure the voices of our amazing community are heard loud and clear by participating in the 2020 census. Let's get counted and shape our future here and now. Thanks for tuning in to the Asian Podcast Network, and here's the show. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Asian Podcast Network, the podcast, a podcast about the community of Asian podcast podcasters and guests and industry professionals who seek to connect, learn, and grow together to grow the global Asian podcasting pie. Today, we have with us Roshan Singh Sambi. Um, Roshan joins us from Singapore. He is the creator of a show called Temujin, which is a five show, a audio, a brand new um, written audio drama that is a narrative show, tell, or I guess a narrative show in the form of audio storytelling. Um, really interested to learn, you know, um, and, and talk to Roshan today. He is the first guest who has produced a, a narrative podcast on this show. And, and so while the very many of the shows that exist today in the podcasting world are either conversations between friends or on a one-on-one interview format. I'm really fascinated to learn about the growing and amazing world of narrative podcasting. So Rashan, hey, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Jerry. First of all, thank you for joining us from tomorrow. Uh, it is just past midnight <laughs> where you are in Singapore. Mm-hmm. And um, as, as we always joke with people in Asia, um, America is always a day late and a little <laughs> bit behind um, in, in many, many more ways than one. Um, Roshan, tell us a little bit about you. Uh, where did you grow up and uh, what led you to the world of podcasting? Mm-hmm. Uh, so, hello. Uh, my name is Roshan. Uh, Roshan, Roshan, all bunch of different pronunciations that are fine. Um, I grew up in Singapore, spent my whole life here, um, I, 25 years old. Uh, graduated from college about a year ago, um, Yale and US. Uh, <laughs> and I think your third question was what led me to podcasting. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, yeah. So roundabout, um, I've always loved audio stories, right? Like I grew up on Peter and the Wolf um, on cassette tape. Um, that was my jam. Um, that was the one where like, um, I think it was... Uh, do, 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 um, with like the French horn was one character mm. and the clarinet was another character. I loved that. Um, I listened to that on repeat. Uh, I listened to the BBC version of Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Um, and I, I just, I thought that was the funniest thing. Um, <laughs> and, you know, the reboot of it was good as well. The, the refresh that the BBC did recently. Um, and I think I've always just loved listening to stories. Um, there's something to be said maybe of that primordial sort of oral storytelling part of our tradition. Um, but I don't know if my brain went to such intricate or deep or mythological depths. Just 
things sound good, thing attained, thing makes me feel good. <laughs> so, mm. um, yeah, I, I think anything that makes me feel good, um, uh, storytelling wise, I, I always wonder how that works, right? So it's always been something at the back of my head is how, how do you pull that off? You know, you have, I think, um, and one skepticism that you hear a lot about audio storytelling is, you know, how do you make it work without the visuals, right? I mean, the pretty pictures right. are the reason anyone looks at anything. Um, and I actually did get asked that quite a lot of times when I was way at the beginning telling people I wanted to do this. Like, will it really hold people's attention? Um, I thought that was a really good question. Um, and I think that's the reason I held off on it uh, for as long as I did. But about two years ago is when I, three years ago is when I decided um, that my passion project script, uh, Temujin, um, might be the right time to make an audio drama. Yeah, tell us about tell us about what 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 Temujin is about. Share with us a little bit about the storyline, um, mm. and and why was it important for you to focus on that as your first project? Awesome. Uh, so I conceptualized Temujin in about 2015, 2016. Um, so I went to school at Yale and US College, um, and one of the things they do there is they kind of give you this thing where you can go and study at Yale pretty easily. So me and my best friend, uh, my roommate, sweet mate, um, Amarbold, he's Mongolian. Uh, we went there together. And um, fun fact, we're actually living together right now. He's in the other room sleeping, I hope. Um, <laughs> and uh, we've been best friends for six years since then. Um, and uh, we did courses together. I did some stuff on Shakespeare as a adapter of history. Um, Amarbold was doing courses on Vikings because academia. <laughs> um, so one day um, I was at a class where somebody insinuated that, um, somebody insinuated that um, the well of grand historical drama has essentially run dry, right? That, that there is only so much um, epic history. And, um, you know, with Shakespeare, it was one thing because these things hadn't been culturally saturated. But these days, the reason uh, he was speculating that, that um, we've moved towards the kitchen sink in theater is because we've you know, drawn the well dry. Um, and I think that that really, really didn't sit with me. Um, this person was white. I mean, I guess that goes without saying. And I suppose that did, that did color it a little bit for me. Because um, sure. I, I just could, I couldn't accept that very easily. So I, I went back to Amarbold and um, we were sort of decompressing after the day. Um, he's like um, slouched on a beanbag is how I'm recalling it right now. Um, and I told him like, hey, this is something that somebody said in class today. And he bolted upright, uh, like fuming. And he's like... Um, he got really angry, actually, at the idea that um, the well of epic history had run dry, um, as both a historian and a Mongolian, because um, he told me huh. uh, verbatim, uh, the historical Chinggis Khan um, is more dramatically interesting uh, than Hamlet ever was. Um, and wow. you know, it's, it's, it's verbatim. It's stuck in my mind for, for a very long time after that. Um, and he even gave me a reading list. Um, like you don't believe me, like look it up, read the history, get acquainted. Um, he gave me the primary source material, which would be the secret history of the Mongols, which is um, considered the oldest surviving literary work of Central Asian slash Mongolian fiction. Uh, well, not fiction, um, mm. storytelling. Um, and he also gave me um, books by the excellent Jack Weatherford, um, who was a best-selling author who essentially made that old text accessible um, in terms of the contents of it. Uh, he just writes in this beautiful historian prose. Um, and I think that's where I really, really fell in love with the stories because what I wasn't expecting from... from And I couldn't tell how much of this was like neo-colonial baggage. 
right? How much of it was just my mm. conceptions of what it meant to be Central Asian or Asian or, you know, I expected like people on horses being very manly and shouting things at each other and drawing arrows. and Which is what we see on TV. Which is what we see on TV, right? Like the Dothraki or the, um, you know, the South Park depiction of Mongolians. Or there's that bit in, um, in Book of Mormon where... Uh, uh, Hitler and Genghis Khan come on stage and start doing like a musical duet together, you know, like bad, bad people. Um, but then you read um, <laughs> the Secret History of the Mongols, and it's just really good, intimate, like bedroom scenes where like you get heated exchanges, monologues, discussions, character arcs, and growth. Like just really, really good plotting and really, really good sort of character beats. Um, and, and the fact that mm. most of it, if not all of it, is is his, is historically faithful. Right, because this is written by somebody in Chinggis Khan's um, uh, sort of family circle. But the thing is, is that it was actually written in code. Um, so people only really started being able to read this ancient document um, as late as essentially the 20th century is when it became very available in English. Um, so it is one of the newest, oldest pieces of um, of epic sort of um, historical like drama. Uh, so yeah, I got really, really into it um, and. Uh, the central sort of relationship for the first half of the book is Genghis Khan and his oldest friend, um, this guy named Jamuk. Um, and the thing with Jamuk is that he starts the story as a sort of princely, sort of regal aristocrat, and he has everything, right? And at that point of the story, Genghis Khan is this exiled orphan kid um, who has nothing and who basically forms this relationship where Jamuk um, almost pities him. And he goes like, like, I will give you what I have, and I will teach you, like, what it means um, uh, to be an ambitious young person, um, and basically lifts him out uh, into the realm of privilege. But uh, Temujin is never quite able to shake off sort of how he grew up. Um, and what happens in the story is there's this fantastic reverse, reversal of fortunes um, and this sort of horrific betrayal of trust on both ends that results in... Tem the one Temujin now sort of standing over a battered and beaten Jamuk, figuring out what to do with him. Um, and like that, that sort of fox and the hound sort of dynamic, or I guess there's a bit of like, to the people who grew up on that, like the Prince of Egypt, Ramses, no Moses dynamic of like um, very, very close brotherhood um, sort of gone wrong. Um, it's just such a strong, sort of compelling, emotional stake. And I, I, I realized that, like, um, in writing the script for that, that, that would make for immensely compelling even theater. You know, like, you don't need a full array of steps, horses, and archers, and battles to make that interesting. Because the human emotional drama of it, as written by these Central Asian people hundreds of years ago, is still compelling. So, like, um, my point of pride in this is that we didn't change um, a thing like our goal was to adapt um, within the lines and between the lines at most but we knew where a b and c were and we didn't want to do anything that wasn't just sort of very careful historical sort of like reconstruction where we had to um, like because it's good the book is already good you know the stories are already good and we just wanted i think my goal was to preserve the feeling I had reading it of going, oh my God, this is so much more compelling than I thought it would be. And just you, the thing with drama, right? Is that like, um, if I wrote an essay about how underappreciated, um, let's say Central Asian literature is, 
um, it would take me about a hundred pages um, to convey what one page of well-written character setup and payoff can do. Like that's a part of drama, right? Mm. You feel the impact of the thesis. You don't just appreciate it. So um, yeah, I mean, with Temujin, we spent ages, ages working on the script to get it right. Um, two full years of rewrites. Sorry, I'm, I've been talking for a while now. No, no, no. Yeah. I'm, I'm, it's it's fascinating because <laughs> the hours, I, I guess if there were some sort of ratio of like prep work versus output, right? That it's, it's ridiculous from the time that you heard that, you know, S9 comment yeah. all the way to you pressing <laughs> upload. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and, and so I don't want to give away the whole, whole storyline or the whole show, but I, mm. I want to ask you specifically about mm. That that process and mm-hmm. um and, and and you did a crowdfunding campaign to get some of this funded. Mm-hmm. Um, That's right. What was that experience like? And mm. um, share with us for a lot of the people who are curious about starting their own, mm. you know, narrative based or you mm. know, um, limited series podcast. Mm. Um, what was your goal in producing it? Because mm. some of these stories that are very popular get adapted into TV and other sort of things, and and we know that's an exit. Um, what was your ultimate goal in addition to preserving a little bit of history and sharing our version of it um, and and share with us a little bit of insight on the fundraising and the crowdfunding mm. portion of that? That's excellent. Okay, so two questions. The first is what was the goal? And the second is the, the crowdfunding process. Um, the first question, um, for most of the process, um, the goal was the script. Like, can we tell the story well? Initially in my head, I thought it would be a theater piece. Um, and I wrote it initially as a theater piece um, with, with very bare minimum set sort of requirements, as any good theater script has to. Um, the more you assume will be provided for your production, the less likely it'll get produced. Um, so like the motto I had was write this to be compelling at a bar um, with no lights or staging. Um, so those two years basically were a lot of uh, writing about 20 to 30 pages, um, realizing something fundamentally was not working and starting from scratch. About a year in, I began to question if this would work as a play at all. Um, but mm. we kept tackling and tackling and tackling. Um, I think initially it was going to be a story about Genghis Khan, right? And he was going to be the main character and it was going to start from like childhood to... Um, there's a version of the script where like 30 pages in, um, Genghis Khan still hasn't like shown up. <laughs> um, mm. uh, like Temujin hasn't even shown up. And I think what cracked it was uh, framing the story from the perspective of uh, Jamuk, the best friend. So he's actually like the central character. He's on stage almost the entire time, uh, kind of like Salieri and Amadeus, right? Like the whole thing is kind of his own perspective, um, uh, his own sort of imagining things, um, uh, how things went down, his perspective. Uh, that really made it work. That really, really made it work because then you have a singular voice, motivation, and suddenly we could plot his arc and... Not so much is known about him historically, so we were able to sort of take some license where I think when our, our original sort of straight adaptation um, mm. just read like a play-by-play sort of almost like a shonen anime of a plucky young kid who continually overcomes insurmountable odds and wins the day. Um, it was a lot more dramatically interesting once we realized we can frame it from the perspective of a guy who ultimately, historically, you know, gets the short end of the stick. Um Hmm. what's going to happen to him you don't know um <laughs> so uh that was what writing that, that, that was a huge thing with the writing phase i went to mongolia actually for about two to three weeks with um wow. Arbold, my best friend uh we spent half of it in the countryside half of it in the city um we visited theaters um asked them like 
to just to learn about like what is art in Mongolia like? What is storytelling in Mongolia like? Um, you know, how do people regard these stories today? And obviously the answer is with utmost respect um, and dignity, almost to the amount of, um, you know, almost to religious levels. Um, the stories in this are read almost like the stories in the Bible in terms of having shamanistic sort of value, um, that even if they are not 100% true, there is something to be said about what it means to live a good life. Um, so one, I hope I'm not going on too many tangents. You Please no. do feel free to like... Um, no, this uh, is good. Yeah. Um, someone actually told me that... Um, um, okay, let me take two steps back. Oh, no, I totally lost my point about that. I, it'll, if it's important, it'll come back to me. You, you went to Mongolia. Yeah, basically, I went to Mongolia. Um, and so we talked about, like, what is art making there like? How do people regard this story? Um, you know, and oh, interesting thing is that that Jack Weatherford book, um, this um, American-born, I believe, uh, professor who wrote about uh, Genghis Khan, uh, he's a bestseller in Mongolia, too. So to, mm. to speak of our earlier conversation about like neocolonial effects, I think in a weird way, this was like a positive example of it. Because this guy thinking, how do I make old Central Asian literature accessible to modern white audiences, inadvertently made it accessible to modern Mongolian audiences, too. Um, mm. So that's something to think about. But um, and Jack Weatherford, actually, um, we talked to him, uh, that author, um, about this play and like how we make it um, faithful. Uh, one thing he said is that, like, I think he confirmed our suspicion that nobody had tried telling this specific story of these two, like, friends, brothers, um, before in English ever. Um, which, again, is interesting, given it's like a 800-year-old history. Um, okay, three steps back. <laughs> so I was in Mongolia. Um, I think as important as sort of the modern ethnographic research um, was the geographical research, I think. Um, because my goodness, um, it is such a distinct feeling to be sitting on, to imagine sort of, if you will, if you close your eyes um, and imagine that directly in front of you, there is a full sort of sea of land, 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 land that touches the horizon, flat, right? So not like, like this, just like flat land reaching the horizon. And you look back and it's the same thing. And it's at once like claustrophobic and infinitely freeing and i'd heard that feeling described which is when i knew that i can't write this thing without having been to mongolia because how could you imagine inhabiting that space for longer than two seconds by you know you can't um so i went there to try to figure out um with my friend umberbold what, what, is, what is it like to just sit and have a conversation on the plains um because you can't write what you don't haven't experienced, um, you know, and a huge thing right. in conversations about appropriation um, and sort of cultural legitimacy, I think should at the very least, um, it's a complicated issue. Um, but one thing I believe is that um, you need to at the very least be willing to admit that there's a lot you don't know um, and to put yourself in there and to go, to challenge sort of the boundaries of your own empathy. Um, and the research phase was basically just a continual series of like, yes, historical stuff, Yes, modern cultural stuff. And then also like the very act of like, how hard could it have been? And that helped us a lot when we were fleshing out the female roles too, because um, they are slightly underwritten in, in the history. But once you are able to sort of crack these people as like living, breathing people, and what would they look like and feel like if you bumped into them today? And that was important to us because we wrote this all in modern vernacular. Um, we experimented with iambic pentameter of all things. Um, but we settled in modern vernacular because the whole point of this was like, 
what what would this feel like as a modern accessible story? Um, and that really helped. It really, really helped. Just radical empathy, basically. Um, and, and sort of that trip to Mongolia helped to sort of contextualize all these things and really serve as a continual test of what have we taken for granted in imagining that I can write this story. Um, and that was super, super helpful. There were so many great people who who read and sort of talked through early ideas and went, this is what I think, or this is how I would feel if you presented this version of the story to me um, as a foreigner. And that was really nice. What you've done, mm. I mean, technically, you, you wrote a play, right? Like mm. Initially, You just yeah. decided to perform it, right, perform yeah. it in, in an audio-first sort of a, mm-hmm. of, of, of a platform, mm-hmm. which I think if we look at some of the most popular podcasts mm-hmm. of all time, mm-hmm. Um, you know, stereo comes to mind, mm. dirty John comes to mind, mm. um, you know, in, in some ways, while one may think that without the visual, mm. we, we lack, um, it actually mm. amplifies the ability for people to imagine oh, scenes and people in, in their own mind, which I think definitely. requires a little bit more attention definitely. and, you know, um, it, it's not just TV on the background while you do something else. Definitely. So, and it's so much more intimate. That's the thing that nobody tells yeah, you. Like, I, I yeah. I think yeah, even more than theater. I think theater has a pred- pedigree as being the most intimate form of storytelling. But it took making an audio drama and listening back to it to go, oh my god, like this is. It feels almost perverse sometimes when you're sitting in for a really good scene. The 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 thing about audio too, Roshan, mm-hmm. is that it's accessibility. Oh, that was such a strong consideration. Yeah, <laughs> a a yeah. global mm-hmm. audience to ultimately listen to your stuff for free, yeah. which is a benefit if the goal is to share a story yes. that has not been yet shared very widely. So, yes. man, I, I think on all fronts, um, you, you, you've done something amazing. Thank you. Um, it is, it's super cool, man. Um, it's rare. Um, you know, as, as a person who hosts a, you know, weekly, bi-weekly interview show, mm-hmm. a, a lot of that is, Yes, it's a lot of time before the show. Mm. Yes, it's a lot of research on the guests and mm. you know editing. But by no means um, mm. is it to discount the process of creating an interview-based show, mm. but to create a narrative show that requires an actual script and mm. actual research and, and for you to have spent in-person time mm. in country mm. to learn about the story and the people mm. um, and, and the things that will make your... Uh, show it what it is right mm-hmm. um I, I i think it's commendable i think it's something that i i hope becomes more and more common thank you um because it's uh you know we we, we think about we we talk constantly about uh the asians need to tell our stories right mm-hmm. and a lot of that focus right now is on telling our own stories our mm-hmm. personal journeys whether you stayed in Asia and you dealt with your struggles or you immigrated to a different country or you're a post-war refugee, mm. whatever that may be. Mm. Um, and I think what's really come to light, especially given the current events in America and having to learn, learn, mm. not even going to say relearn, mm. learn for the first time for very many people, the ugly history and the ugly truth that actually makes America what it is mm. in terms of slavery, in terms of um, you know, uh, wrongful laws and, and acts against Asians mm. ourselves mm. is this need to tell relook at some of these historic stories yeah. that we think we know and then to really challenge ourselves to say was that the true version or was that the version that somebody else mm-hmm. would have preferred us to remember it by because mm-hmm. it helps 
them it, it fits their narrative a little bit better so mm-hmm. um kudos to you man you. um i i think if, if you're if you're listening and you're like hey man i'm listening to the asian podcast network podcast discover new shows i i don't know if i have the time for all of it here's a good part it's five episodes it you're gonna learn something you're gonna enjoy it i i think it's an amazing piece of work that you created um cannot wait to see what your next thing is um and and best of luck to you man thank you for making time on this show and um come back and we'll and we'll talk about the crowdfunding and we'll talk about a whole (laughs) bunch of other stuff um but yeah i really appreciate you making time for us today and thank you for the work that you've done and and best of luck if anybody listening to this like feels like you need help or you'd like some input in this um i'm not exactly sure what the format will be but um, if there's a way for me to like include contact or a way to reach out, uh, yeah, we'll, we'll do that. Yeah, um, I'd yeah. be happy to help. <laughs> and and, and Rashad's a member of the Facebook group, yeah. so you know, tag him or reach out to him directly. Yeah. Um, you know, find him on LinkedIn or yeah. wherever. We'll, we'll tag all of his contact information <laughs> in the link below, mm-hmm. um, in the podcast notes or in the uh, the comment section mm-hmm. or the uh, description section of the video. So, um, yeah, thanks for that. That's awesome. Oh, pleasure, really. Awesome. Well, have 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 a great uh, tomorrow in Singapore. <laughs> Thank you. You have a great and, yesterday. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> right. Take care. You too, Jerry. Thank you.